Hello and welcome to Japan on Fire Part 2. I'm your host, Stuart Sutherland. My co-hosts tonight are Ken. Evening. And Mike. Morning. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we might be on different sides of the world. So, Covering all bases. You should say afternoon, Stu. Okay, <laughs> At least one of us is bound to be right. Yeah, okay. Damn it, the first well, line... Why complicate this I was... show already? I know, the first, the first line on my next, like, the little script I've written out is tonight. I was like, tonight we will be. It's like, fucking bastards, now what am I going to say? <laughs> right, so... Coming up. <laughs> Coming up sometime during the day, we have. Yep. So, yes, we will be tackling the Japanese genre of pinky violence. Ken will be giving our listeners a brief history of the genre, and we will also be discussing two of their most distinguished films. So with that, out, with that introduction out of the way, I'll let Ken start the history lesson. Uh, pinky violence is, as it turns out, quite... Um, it takes a little while to explain, and uh, you also have to set it up uh, what, basically, what made the term. So, uh, thanks to Wikipedia, I've edited down a bit, I'll, I'll give the listeners and my co-hosts uh, a bit of history. And, uh, it's a varied history, and it covers ground from the 60s, and still appears, uh, from the 60s until the 70s, late 70s, and it still appears sporadically by definition today, meaning there's now and again some exploitation movies fitting into the pink film uh, category or erod I can't I can't even pronounce the word I've written here sorry erodoction you know it's a complicated genre already this uh, sleazy and trashy films they use d uh, difficult words which is makes sense actually because it's um, it's it's really a cinematic genre without exact equivalent in the West, uh, though called pornography, the, the pink film, the, the term erotica, soft porn, or sexploitation have been suggested as more appropriate, and I like either of those, actually. Um, the censorship laws in Japan actually prevents um, the display of genitals in these films, so uh, and even pubic hair, which is not the case in Hong Kong, for instance, so uh, they have to be, uh, the filmmakers had to be and have to be creative in hiding the uh, working parts, if you will, or they just uh, fogged out the the forbidden parts, if you will. So uh, you got uh, pixelated, pi pixelated pubic um, hair and stuff like that, which uh, may not seem like uh, important facts in pink film, but um, I'm leading up to why why it's important. <laughs> uh, it has, of course, been suggested though and proven by by the movies in, in this wide genre, as many people know, that they aimed a little higher uh, in terms of artistic quality, but uh, during some time that there was like a quota that they required to meet, like three or four sex scenes per hour. Uh, but at the same time, they were allowed to focus on the filmmakers on the complexity in the representation of gender and the human mind, which is not something you get with uh, exploitation movies always. And uh, I found an, an amusing list uh, to accompany all this, of what would be the requirement for a pink film. <laughs> and, uh, one is what I just basically mentioned, that the film must have a required minimum quota of sex scenes. The film must be approximately one hour in duration, which leads me to believe that this list was uh, concocted at sort of the early stages of the pink film, because movies rarely uh, clock at one hour only, unless they're... I don't know, uh, video productions, I guess. Cheap uh, mm -hmm. porn films. 16mm uh, or 35mm will do, but the filming, filming time, uh, production time, must be within one week. So again, they're taking this, taking this the cheap route to get as many movies out as possible. Uh, and the fourth point, actually, the fourth uh, on, on the list here is actually that the film must be made on a very limited budget. So this uh, very foggy explanation of the pink film leads us into uh, the basic history of it and uh, gradually throughout the 40s and 50s uh, in Japan 
subjects such as kissing, sexual frankness, and showing any kind of flesh were taboo, but they began to creep into Japanese cinema. And you had foreign films such as Ingmar Bergman's uh, Soma and Monica, or Summer with Monica, or Russ Meyer's The Moral Mr. T's, and they introduced female nudity in, in, into international cinema and were imported without problem, strangely enough. But it would take like until 1962 before films featuring nudity could jump out of the underground and into the minds of the masses. And one key production is uh, Flesh Market from 1962 by Satoru Kobayashi. Uh, very controversial and popular independent production and sort of considered the first true pink film uh, It was made for 8 million yen, which I don't know exactly what it is in pounds or US dollars, but uh, it took in over 100 million yen and uh, This director Kobayashi he remained active in the pink industry if you will until the 1990s so uh, With this normally comes uh, sort of backlash public bash backlash moral people that defend uh, good morals uh, uh, they try to take these movies uh, to court which uh, often happens with uh, con controversial things uh, but uh, a famous court case I didn't find any details it had the film actually winning the filmmakers winning and popularity obviously skyrocketed one of the other backlashes for the defenders of moral uh, trying to ban stuff you just create uh, more of a Anticipation. What is it they're trying to ban? Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, and we're uh, until the late 1960s, uh, the pink film market though was almost entirely the domain of low-budget independent companies. Uh, but at the beginning of the 70s, when the big companies were beginning to lose audiences to television and imported American imported American films, that these major studios such as Toei they were struggling for survival and entered the pink market, uh, creating mixtures of action, violence, comedy and torture. And uh, what sort of spurred the pinky violence term was uh, the following, actually. Uh, there, there was this producer called Kanji Amao, who designed a group of series. Shigeki uh, Rosen, Sensational Line. Idio Seai Rosen, Abnormal Line. Sorry, very much like. But my favorite, and Herenshi Rosen, Shameless Line, today collectively referred to as Toei's Pinky Violence. And uh, among the series created during this time was uh, uh, Chunya Ito's Sasori, uh, which means Scorpion, series of uh, women in prison films based on the manga by Toro Shinohara. And that started with a uh, movie we will be discussing, a female convict uh, 701, 701 Scorpion. Uh, other studios like Mikatsu became famous for their extensive Roman porno films. And, uh, yeah, kind of Caligula only times 100 movies in the same vein, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and their higher quality sex films essentially took the film market away from the smaller independent studios until the mid 80s when the AV, adult video, porn, all but ended the theatrical <laughs> pornographic film. So it's kind of interesting how how that how that took took it from the underground into the mainstream and then when i guess av came in and video came in then sort of uh shift in you know the throne on the, on the porn market if you will it, it shifted because video was more available mm -hmm. and people to make videos so that's that's a long winded but basic history of the pink uh, pink violence which i i find um Stuff I find fa fascinating to to, uh, to read about, actually, especially when you create that kind of line of films, you know, sensational line, abnormal line, which I don't know what movies uh, belong to that line, but I'm dying to find out. <laughs> <laughs> the abnormal line can be the most fucked up shit ever. So if you if you know anything, uh, any movies listeners connected to the abnormal line, please give me an email. <laughs> so yeah, Ken, do you want like a drink of water, a wee breather, since you've like sat and read all that out? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm alright. I'm alright. Cool. Right. So our first film we're going to discuss tonight is what's it? Yes, a female convict. Well, 
I'm guessing that goes under different titles because the version I saw was Female Prisoner 701. Scorpion. Pa Aye, Scorpion. And some people just call it Scorpion. Yep, so, um, the first of the movies we will be discussing, as we've said, Female Convict 701, Scorpion. Now, storyline for this movie, let me wipe, wipe up. <laughs> wipe up the page. Let me wipe up the screen. Ah, please, I was... <laughs> Go on, we're no reenacting scenes from Rape by an Angel here. <laughs> right. Hey, Stu, before yeah. you read that out, how about I read you something from Wikipedia? Uh-oh. About the women in prison subgenre. Oh, okay. Now, see if this correlates to what you're about to read out. Right. Women in... Recurring plot elements. They're generally... Women in prison films begin with an innocent girl being wrongfully sent to a corrupt penitentiary or reform school run by a brutal and lecherous male or lesbian warden. After the obligatory strip search, group shower, lesbian sex scenes, cat fights with a tough queen bee gang leader, a stabbing or two, cruel punishments and sexual assaults by sadistic guards, and a yard riot quelled by spraying the prisoners with a fire hose, the story usually concludes with a bloody uprising or escape sequence into which the villains meet with a grisly death. Yeah, it has elements mm -hmm. of that, but a lot of more weird ones that doesn't correlate to that. So, mm -hmm. so I think uh, pretty much all that's mentioned is about to uh, pop up. Yeah, it could be it really could, like the male in prison movies, I guess. Too. Men in prison movies, in a way. Maybe. Except without sex stuff. scenes, but. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, after being cruelly set up by a crooked detective, Sugimi. Played by Iso Natsuyagi, which I know nothing of, uh, male actor, whom she loved, and Nami Matsushima, aka Matsu the Scorpion, played by the wonderful Meiko Kaji, is sentenced to a hard time in a women's prison which is run by sadistic and horny male gods. Very much important. Uh, there are 700 other prisoners, oh, duh, uh, making Matsu number 701. Her crime was making a failed attempt uh, to stab Sugimi on the steps of the Tokyo Metropol Metropolitan Police Headquarters because he used her to win favor with Yakuza. And on the outside, uh, Sugimi and the Japanese Mafia orchestrate a plan in which Matsushima will succumb to an accidental death in prison. But little do they realize, however, how hotly Matsushima's desire for revenge against Sugimi burns. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> but yeah, uh, from the discussed women in prison subgenre of Pinky Violence films, uh, this was made by Toei Company in 1972, and it's the first in a series based on, as I said before, the manga by Toro Chinohara. Chinohara. Has anyone done any, any research on this? What I guess is a gentleman. Gentleman. Uh, not yet. No. But it starred. Uh, it doesn't need to. Uh, we don't need to do any research on him because he, his work on on the film, as basis for the film, is quite clear, quite wonderful. Uh, the film starred Meiko Kaji and uh, was Shunya Ito's directorial debut. And I find it quite fascinating that he won Best Picture at the Japanese Academy Awards uh, 1985 with, with his film *Grey Sunset*, which was an, about the story of a man suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And it became the Japanese entry for the Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film. There, the entry, their entry that they sent instead of *Ran* by Akira Kurosawa, uh, which was a bit of a controversial thing. But uh, in the end, *Grey Sunset* was not uh, even nominated. And uh, this was actress Meiko Kaji's breakthrough, and she stayed on for four of these movies. Uh, but uh, she left the series after, for some reason, the director Chunya Ito. Uh, became absent from the series and uh, her like second very crucial and the iconic part was in the, another revenge themed film called Lady Snowblood which has gained some popularity in the West uh, also based by, uh, based on a manga by the same author of uh, Crime Freeman and Lone Wolf and Cub and that movie along with Female Prisoner was one of the inspirations for Kill Bill mm -hmm. uh, going so far as uh, using female prisoners theme song for the end credits of Kill Bill. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. I swear there's there's about 
a hundred films, Asian films with inspired Kill Bill written somewhere on the DVD packaging. Uh, I don't know how they treated female prisoner in that regard if it came out on DVD before Kill Bill. I don't know, but... Well, on my copy it says uh, inspiration behind Kill Bill or something like that. that. (laughs) Mike's done the research. Listen to the man. (laughs) So guys, this cult favourite and to some people classic piece of pinky violence. Stu, what do you think of it? Um, yeah, I quite liked it. Right. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> Mike? <laughs> yeah, it was alright. Ken? <laughs> okay, tune in next week. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I did like the film. I, I have to say, it's not a genre I've looked into much. Like, even just the prison genre, I think. Like, I've played, looked no further than the Prison on Fire movies and Island on Fire. But yeah, it, it did come up with the like things you you would expect to see in a prison movie, as Mike was mentioning with that list. Like there had to be a shower scene, and there had to be some like brutal beatings, rape. But yeah, it, by the end of the film, like I ended up realizing I enjoyed this more than I thought I would have, because. I kind of just thought this was going to be some smutty, well not, I knew of its reputation, but I just felt like I'd, I had seen a box of some, it would, I would, wouldn't say there would be Japanese pinky violence movies, but it was Japanese movies, which was basically just watching softcore porn, and it was filmed terribly, storylines were terrible, and it kind of set me off on the wrong foot when it came to these movies, I was kind of expecting the same, but yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. There were good films, but it wasn't like a film I would be putting on display. Like, is everybody this the movie, to see this one. Is this the movie where y- you told me uh, a wonderful quote from your girlfriend when you were watching one of these movies anyway? Uh, which I won't relate that quote because I would, wouldn't do it justice, but would you mind telling me her reaction towards... Yeah, before going out on Sunday, I managed to watch, say, the first ten minutes, just to get a taste for the film. And after you could remember from the opening credits, uh-huh. and then basically by the time it was for us to go, turned off, turned around, she looked to me, I looked at her and she's like, that looked dirty. <laughs> and I just looked at her and was like, yes ah. it does. <laughs> and is it is. It's, it's research. <laughs> I'm not sleeping on the couch tonight. Fuck you. <laughs> well, that part didn't happen. <laughs> I'm still on yeah. the couch. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you, you know, it, it's it's um, go, going back to like uh, your impression of other, you know, exploitation movies being cheap and stuff. This was obviously a big studio effort. Mm-hmm. Kind of set, makes this sort of more fascinating compared to Hong Kong where it wasn't constant studio efforts when the category 3 genre broke Uh, but when but in Japan it was different there just a different push happened to the pink film via Toei Mikatsu I guess you know uh, shooting in beautiful widescreen and stuff like that and serviceable stories I mean it's not the greatest story ever told this but Mm-hmm. Or a revenge themed film. You know, it covers its beats. But but uh, it's a. Uh, what I find cool is that that no one is making excuses for the product they're making, mm-hmm. which is very evident by the opening credits, where for some reason either the new prisoners or all the prisoners are walking on this uh, rev- naked, of course, naked on this humi- humiliating obstacle course with horny prison guards underneath it drooling at the sights they're watching from underneath. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, which is sort of the most wacky side of the film. It's a really wonderful shot of that guard just frozen. Yeah. Uh, like like Homer Simpson <laughs> drooling, basically. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it, but it doesn't go the Wong Jing style uh, uh, comedy route after this, uh, or, or at all, really. 
of what you think of uh, like uh, it had sort of an arty feel to to the film too. A few sequences were really mm -hmm. artistic. What do you think of that? Yeah, those were some of the parts I thought were actually actually made up for the film in some places because like there were shots and I'm pretty sure it was this film where it's actually shots where the main girl's lying face down but they're actually filming un underneath her so it yeah. looks as if they're right mm -hmm. where it's just being shot from underneath them being shot through glass basically and I thought that, like, that was a great initiative to do like shots that way because you always see the person lying face down but they took the, om the opportunity to show you an extra tip by going underground <laughs> <laughs> they took all their chances which is kind of like the, this uh, elaborate uh, backstory exposition sequence told on like giant sound stages with revolving sets or mm -hmm. sparse sets, not really akin to Dogville as such, but there's the, the something that reminded me of Dogville, so keeping it very simple and not, uh, uh, on, on these uh, like large sets. And uh, yeah, I, I kind of like this, uh, not genius as such, but I wasn't like thrown off uh, it was kind of a new way to tell you know a backstory exposition is always a you know mm -hmm. fucking tricky thing to get into movies because yeah, uh, yeah. it just basically looked like that it showed you her in the foreground like frozen in thought and it showed you the revolving stage in the background basically telling you the story that's playing in her mind at that moment yeah and I, it was just like like it's basically saying effort has been put into this film Sort of maybe the comic book influence, possibly, which is mm -hmm. all over this film that we, we probably will discuss in a bit. Uh, that I don't know if if you want to see it as you know the revolving sets are uh, a one new frame in the comic book or something like that. Uh, I, I don't know, but uh, if that isn't the comic book influence, then other moments in the film are uh, very much comic book influences. I think, or, or, or almost bordering on. Uh, borderlining on the supernatural mm -hmm. uh, which uh, one of the one of the more striking things is that whenever someone is enraged uh, they turn on the green lights mm -hmm. and uh, their hair starts to stand up and um, you know straight out of sort of uh, anime or manga you always like if it were animated you you have you, you would have the background uh, racing party really fast you know really mm -hmm. so uh, I think this is why perhaps some people might not like the movie because of these really, you know, the artistic ex excursion, uh, excursions as this really, you know, whenever the green light appears and people appear almost uh, possessed by monsters uh, when, when they are enraged. But I think it's, it's part of the comic book influence and also it's not difficult for the Japanese audience to be involved in a switch like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, did that throw you off uh, when that happened? Uh, no, I, I actually quite enjoyed like the use of basically what I like to call basically like the death tone, like just the basically this color, the, like the pale green light comes on whenever, like basically the like Nami gets her revenge. I thought it was a great idea. Because uh, nowadays, they, well, obviously nowadays it's not used, but I always loved it when, like, how it was the ho movies like 2002 and the Troublesome Night films where whenever it was a ghost, it was basically somebody with, like, a green light bulb shining up to them. Yeah, exactly. It always kind of made me think back to those. But this was it just basically being used in a different tone. Instead of being a haunting spirit, it was basically like, that's you fucked, pal stab light on <laughs> so um, what's your take on that Mike uh, in terms of being a comic book uh, influence those kind of scenes we've talked about well I like the lighting it's kind of uh, expressionistic um, you know rather than just flat out gritty realism mm -hmm. it's adding a, a bit of extra depth and a different way of expressing character emotions and situations uh, as for the film in general um, I loved it yeah on my uh, if I haven't said it I loved it <laughs> I did a, my top 10 
films of 2008 that I did for uh, Far East Films. Sandwiched between Lone Wolf and Cub, Sword of Vengeance in 8th, and Young Vagabond in 6th, is Female Prisoner. Um, going back to Lone Wolf and Cub, what, where, where is that in the series? Sword of Vengeance, 2nd or 3rd? That's the first one. Oh, it is the first, okay. Yep, it's the only one I've wanted to watch so far, but okay. I did like it. Um, and for Female Prisoner, I wrote a classic in the woman in, women in prison subgenre. If you like violence, breasts, and horror movie overtones, then you're going to enjoy this. See, now, think, think about this. It appears dirty. And there's definitely lots of boobs in there. And some sex. And violence. But it doesn't exist just for the boobs and violence. Which I feel like uh, Sex and Fury did a little bit. But we'll get onto that later. This is... It's a, it's a good... Um, well-told... Revenge film. But very um, basic revenge film. It's not like Park Chan-wook layers of depth of revenge. It's basic beats, but uh, basic beats is not a bad thing at all. It probably should be commended that you, you know, just perform within, you know, the basic one, two, three, four beats that needs to happen for the character. Betrayed, prison, get out of prison, slaughter. <laughs> yeah. And also, I felt um, linked to the kind of, you know, the lights and the kind of expressionism style it felt a lot of the time like a horror film rather than just a straight up uh, prison thing it was like uh, anybody who tries to commit violence or wrong you know tries to treat the main character wrong ends up uh, suffering from a fate they get punished in some way and not usually directly by her Usually by other people. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, like The Omen or something. So I quite like the horror movie style on that. Um, yeah, and it's just a, it's just a, like you said, it's not, it's not overly complex or anything. It's still an exploitation film, but it's a good, solid, exciting revenge flick, and, and propelled as well by. Um, Michael Cagey. Yeah. Who who is just amazing. great. I mean she uh, she's got tons of uh charisma and, and kind of star quality. Totally focused on her when she's on screen and, and she draws you into the using the really good exposition that you and Stu talked about. Which I thought was a really clever scene, really uh, interesting and fresh. Mm-hmm. Um drags you straight into a into in into a character situation and uh, empathising and being on her know. side almost instantly. You, you don't need to know more about her than that she was an ordinary woman, as you said, and she fell in love. You don't need, like, you know, you don't need scenes of her as a child, which I kind of like that they kept it to, to that, which is a key moment in her life. Yeah, well, it's she lean. The whole film's lean. It's got a good pace about it. Gets from you know, plot point to plot point and action scene and scene to scene. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. It's really a short debut movie, to be honest. I don't know how much uh, experience uh, uh, Shunya Ito had in making you know any kind of story or narrative, but it's really a short. And also very hyper st- stylistically at the same time, which neither doesn't, you know, uh, kill off. Uh, you know, the, the, the choices doesn't kill off each other. Anyway, it, it's allowed to be hyper with tilted angles and, and that kind of horror-esque, uh, horror-esque uh, feeling that it has sometimes. But uh, going back to Make Cardia, you've often seen, but it's it's rare that I I'm floored by this kind of. Um, determination which is fury also you know she she never breaks down they, they try to break her via the usual things you know m- making her do manual labor day and night but i think i was so floored by you know it's the christmas you said the presence uh you know and uh, you, you could just see the fury in her 
kept her going, which may not be realistic as such, that she can work day and night, but it really doesn't matter. That's not the point of it all making sense on a realistic level. <laughs> you can't go into it like that and you're just fucked. And you, you don't belong <laughs> watching these movies if you tr try to get something real out of it. Well, the thing I liked, in regards to what you just said there, Ken, is that she is kind of almost superhuman. Um, and, you know, she's unbreakable and solid and, you know, burning with revenge. But when actually she confronts, anytime she ever confronts her ex who uh, double-crossed her, it's the, it's the only times when she seems really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's the only time when she, yeah, she makes mistakes or she can't follow through like she did before or she doesn't look as steely. Which is kind of why it's, really uh, like. it becomes a strong portrait. And it also, in my mind, uh, connects to what I talked about at the top of the show, where the pink genre was allowed, I don't know, often, but you know, if it's on Wikipedia, then it must have been used often enough, uh, where, where I talked about the complexity in the representation of gender in the human mind. This is certainly not cheap uh, char character uh, creation of a character. It's, uh, I, I would say it's layered. Uh, and uh, even if other movies have covered, covered similar beats, it's about how you perform within that kind of cliche. If you perform well within something familiar, that then then you did do a good job. So, so I think uh, I don't know necessarily if women would enjoy this film, but uh, they they would certainly be rooting for this character. I would say. Mm -hmm. Should it be difficult for women to root for? If you get them past that fucking opening credit sequence, <laughs> and yeah. a few other scenes, then perhaps you know. During these 90 minutes, if you get them to the end, then they're like, "Yeah, stab that motherfucker!" <laughs> <laughs> and you've got yourself, uh, and you got yourself a good date movie, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Is that getting three thumbs up then? Uh, I would say so. What's that mm -hmm. sound? <laughs> what the fuck was that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just thinking of equivalent of three thumbs on one person. <laughs> Three. Come on, Thumb <laughs> each. Yeah, perv. <laughs> but this but is the pinky violence where? episode. I don't want to know where. Where the sun don't shine? Oh. <laughs> yeah, we're, so. We're not that depraved. Mm. Not always. Mm -hmm. So, with Scorpion out the road, I think we could do a brief break. <laughs> Second movie of the night, and I guess another pinky classic. It's certainly a movie that many think of when they think pink violence, uh, pinky violence, and it's Sex and Fury. And uh, that plot goes a little something like this: uh, set in Meiji era, era Tokyo, which I don't know when it is. Uh, Sex and Fury features pinky starlet Reiko Ike as Ocho Inushika, a skilled gambler. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. It had more, it was, uh, was more modern in, in appearance, uh, that film. So, should be right. Uh, Reiko Ike plays a skilled gambler, a pickpocket, and swordswoman whose father was murdered when she was a young child by uh, Yakuza. And this is shown in the opening uh, moments of the film, of course. And after making a promise to a dying fellow gambler to save his sister from being forced to work in a brothel, she finds herself in Asakusa, having to compete against European spy and gambler Christina, played conveniently enough by Swedish, Swedish actress uh, Christina Lindberg. And uh, while in Asakusa, she meets up with her old gang of thieves, uh, the Reiko character, and subsequently crosses paths with the ex-Yakuza, now-turned-corrupt government officials who murdered her father, and she does away with them in a series of blood-soaked sword battles, of course. And this is also from Toei Company, and uh, directed by Norofumi Suzuki. And his works apparently dealt with Yakuza, delinquent schoolgirls, and he did Roman porno as well. <laughs> so it's a versatile guy. Uh, and the star, Reiko Ike, she broke out in Toei's Hot Springs Geisha series. 
the movie was called Hot Springs Mimitsu Geisha, made in 1971. But she apparently caused a scandal as she lied about her age when she appeared in this softcore sex film. Didn't hurt the popularity of the film though. And she also starred in all of Toei's terror female high school films made in between 1972 and 1973. But after a drug-related arrest and another arrest for illegal gambling in the 70s, she dropped out of the entertainment business. And Christina Lindberg is Sweden's most famous centerfold and exploitation film star. She has appeared in or starred in 23 feature films, most of which have been erotica, exploitation, or softcore pictures. Uh, her first movie was an American production made in Sweden, M-A-I-D. Uh, filmed in Sweden with a Swedish cast. And her third film, Exponerad, or Exposed, was released with a lot of hoopla at the Cannes Film Festival in, in 1971. And she was turned into an international celebrity. Uh, the movie I guess she's most known for, especially now, again, the Kill Bill influence. Which is good, by the way. I like Kill Bill. Uh, she starred in Thriller and Grim Film, or a Thriller Cool Picture, directed by Boo R. Vibenius. Quite a controversial uh, vigilante or revenge film, I guess. And uh, Quentin Tarantino expressed his admiration for the film and Lindbergh's performance as the character of Madeleine, served as an inspiration for the Daryl Hannah character in Tarantino's Kill Bill, you know, with the eye patch. That was straight out of uh, Thriller. Uh, so, <laughs> the Kill Bill influences, as Mike said earlier, it has about 100 movies referenced, so we're bound to uh, stumble upon them uh, now and again when doing this podcast. But uh, it's not like Qu- Quentin, you know, advertises it openly. It's there for the taking. You know, mm-hmm. If you get it, you get it. Otherwise, it's just Daryl Hannah with a, an eye patch. So, um... We'll go for Mike's opinion first of Sex and Fury. Well, um, I'm flattered to say I didn't really like this film. Um, it's certainly, well, the title's certainly pretty expressive, in so much as it features lots of sex and fury. Although personally, I find the balance of sex and fury to be too much sex, not enough fury. Um, now, when I said before, female prisoner felt like it wasn't a film about you know solely for the purpose of showing you boobs and violence. It was you know a tight, lean, exciting revenge film with boobs and violence. This feels just like an excuse to get people naked and have lots of slow, boring sex scenes. It's like a <clears throat> like a late night American softcore porn film, mm. which tries to add some weight to it to make it seem more than just a lot of boobs and sex. Um, I did make a few notes. One note, which I'll read verbatim as it's written here, is "Whitey no act." <laughs> all the all the Caucasians in this film can't act for toffee. Ah, I remember that there was a review of um, a Brian Wilson album, the genius behind the Beach Boys, and this was before Smile came out, which is one of my favourite albums ever. But it was one of his later ones where uh, there was a review. I forgot which magazine it was. Who said Brian Wilson sings his own lyrics like he's reading out uh, a ransom note. <laughs> that is exactly how they read the lines in this film. Bada bing, bada boom. There's no, there's no, oh, I don't know. There's just no emotion in it. It's almost as if they've got Caucasians reading English lines in English in the film, mm-hmm. but they sound like they're phonetically reading a language they don't understand. W- which is really pro- obvious for me when I listen to Christina Lindberg's dialogue, which is not not only badly performed, but it has that you know. That Swedish accent to the English, and that makes it even more unbearable because it sounds so awfully Swedish. <laughs> no. Well, she, she's a uh, Meryl Streep compared to the Ginger Geezer, yeah, that's who right. is uh, supposedly her boss, who reads out his lines with no emotion 
or sense of tone of voice. <laughs> Christina, <Absolutely> stop! <laughs> Hello! Uh, the, the, the acting in general in the film, I didn't find to be very good. I mean, I know it's, um, you know, I'm not expecting world-class performances because, you know, it's, it's an explo exploitation kind of erotic film. But oh, I think, you, know, you expect something that's going to elevate the story, <clears throat> which this doesn't. Christina Lindbergh has the personality of a doorstop. The top half of her face from above her nose never moves i swear it doesn't move if this was if you know if i didn't know better i would assume she'd had uh industrial shots of botox into her forehead every day before filming because it's just it's rock solid she's blank as can be i suppose in some respect that fits into her character but even when she's supposed to be emoting later on it just doesn't happen um and the the film just doesn't work for me. I mean, as a story, it's just it's not very interesting. It's far too slow. As a revenge film, it doesn't really build any momentum, or it doesn't really take you into the exposition like Female Prisoner did to make you really root for the main character. I just... It's, like I said, one kind of tame sex scene after another. All right. Mm -hmm. Stuart? Um, yeah, now that... Well, I was going to... N now that I'm affected by Mike's opinion, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to change mine. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I would have went with the normal answer and saying, ah, it's all right. But I think the only thing that was a real treat for me was actually when it came <laughs> towards the end of the movie. When it had like the big sword fight where she was racing about the mansion, basically having her way with anyone that got on a road. When I got to show you the classic blood spurts after cutting somebody open. And yeah, even like when it came to like sitting watching it and I'm sitting counting the Kill Bill references to myself. <laughs> that's one. That's one. Fighting a snowstorm. That's one. <laughs> but yeah, it 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 does feel a bit slow for a film that was near enough the exact same length as our first film we discussed, which worked perfectly. But for this one, we might we might have to blame it on the whiteies, eh? <laughs> Damn them whiteies! <laughs> the round-eyed devil ruined this movie. <laughs> but no. you're right. That the the ending is possibly the best part of the film, mm -hmm. where she's kind of. Slicing people up with a big sword. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's definitely like I do like the story on how the way that if revenge was being exact, like being brought out, how it was all to do with like the people that had these tattoos. Then it's related to like the the small metallic playing cards the grandfather had. Lower cards. Aye, those. I just liked how how they were all involved in it along the way. And even when it was finished, like, she finished, she killed the guy. She killed the guy with the deer tattoo. And just, like, flicked the card down on, down on him and walked away. Things like that, I thought, were, like, nice touches to the film. It's sporadic, though. Uh, the the moments that are good, they're, they're mm -hmm. sporadic throughout the film. Uh, which is what I thought of... After watching the film, I was kind of, that was sweet, but I, I thought again, it was not that much that was sweet. Mm -hmm. I think only really your opinion, like, takes a good turn because, well, for me, because the ending was really good. Mm. And it made me thought, that was good, but if you had to start watching again, you're basically watching the first hour thinking, it gets good, it gets good. Mm. It's the primacy and recency effect. Yeah. I'm sure I mentioned this before. Mm -hmm. Starts off with a nudie, uh, limb chopathon in the uh, in the snow yep and finishes in a uh, not quite so nudie sword chopathon at the end and so you think you know please think oh yeah you know i'd have some good moments which but, was not okay overall that it, 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 that you didn't come out of the film sort of 
it was good overall and I would love to watch it again uh, and I have no problem watching all the boring bits until the good bits come out uh, I think the I think that that is the problem with with Sex and Fury. It doesn't invite you back at all, actually, and uh, mm -hmm. it, it it thinks it's a lot better than it is, and that and it talky as hell and slow, as you said. Yes, mm -hmm. I felt there's no tension. You know, this is a revenge film, a revenge film where it's one person, you know, one one lone woman against you know corrupt officials and yakuza and politicians. There should be like real tension about whether she can do it, how she can infiltrate it, what if she gets caught, you know, the, the lust for revenge and how deeply she feels it, and all this kind of stuff. It just doesn't happen. There's, there's a plot twist that, you know, I'm not even sure it's, I don't even, if, I assume it's meant to be a plot twist, but it's so obvious that you can spot it in the first like 10 minutes of the film. And it only gets revealed in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> I just, mm -hmm. I, f I found, I'm surprised that it's got such a, uh, a strong reputation. Because mm. compared <laughs> to something like Female Prisoner, it's, it's not even a patch on that film. Kind of a, it could have been like along the lines of that and like Hong Kong equivalent, like Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan. But it really doesn't meet the, meet up those films at all. and. Uh, and I like watching though these kind of movies that compared to Hong Kong, which I'm really you know steeped in because they, they can be classed in terms of production values, but also in storytelling, which this really wasn't uh, not in storytelling anyway. Production values are you know quite alright. Uh, and I do agree with Stu that the the, the movie delivers at points. Uh, has a really weird modern score, which I I I, I can't stand by that decision at all. I don't know what the point of that was. It was kind of 70s porn score. Bow, chicka, bow, chicka, bow. You just reminded me that the end scene, which had some good moments in it, she mentioned, uh, has actually got totally inappropriate music. Mm -hmm. It has got some kind of like 60s Americana rock and roll mm. bobbling away in the background, which doesn't fit the film at all. At points when I was watching, I thought the copy I was watching, like, how sometimes when an international release gets done, it gets a new soundtrack. Yeah. It did make me question whether this was, like, an original sound soundtrack to or not. Soundtrack by the Prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> by the RZA. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really a... Uh, as I said, the movie's thinks it's better than it is and tries to, you know, place it in historical context and political context, you know, oh... I want, you know, I wanted a blood, blood soaked revenge story again with mm -hmm. easy beats, and uh, if you only get that sporadically, then a 90 minute movie is really a trek to go through. And another really weak, weak plot, uh, supporting plot is the one with Christina Lindbergh and the character with uh, the character of uh, Shuno Suke, you know, mm -hmm. the romance she had with the Japanese guy. You know, it lacks emotional power, obviously, because she's not a good actress. And he has to wade through some cringe-worthy English dialogue as well. And yeah. uh, mm -hmm. so, so unfortunately, I, I, I guess to be kind, this movie has about half an hour of uh, its potential realized for me. About me, because it it uh, it has that wonderful nude fight uh, at the beginning of the film where they surprise Reiko Iki in the bar, mm -hmm. which uh, which goes out into the snow and stuff like that. Uh, quite like that because it's uh, it doesn't necessarily wow she's fighting naked it wasn't necessarily about that at all times it was that you know surprise attack visually arresting at least and uh, another fun sort of freshy and suitably unpleasant thing in the film was when this virgin prostitute was given a nymphomaniac oh, elixir yeah. and, and, and this was not followed up on as such that just happening once again. You know, what happened to that thing? I wanted to see that thing. <laughs> but uh, so um, and and in between all that, you know, mm -hmm. you only have the like very good, like final reel, which has you know begins with I think I, I don't know if Ocho fights before she's basically crucified. Uh, if it's before that she fights a little bit, she obviously fights afterwards. But 
this you know bloody in a church in front of images of Jesus and not nailed to a cross but tied to a cross you know something to piss religious freaks off <laughs> you know, in front of an image of Jesus yeah that's sweet that's provocative but uh, it yeah it's oh, uh, my, it, oh sorry I'm saying my girlfriend rang me while I was watching it uh, and it was just coming up to that uh, the kind of the rape scene of the virgin that you mentioned and uh, I said to her oh the guy in the film is uh, smearing a cream up some virgin's badge to turn a uh, to make her crave men and uh, Jen said that sounds stupid yeah, because <laughs> yeah. we were all expecting the next scene to see her basically grinding against the table leg <laughs> like some mad dog in heat. Exactly, but what happened to that? I I don't remember anything. Yeah, nothing mm. happened. She oh. she cried to uh to uh you know Roko uh Ike, and mm. uh, that was it. Oh, she said he had a deer on his back. That's all she was there for, just to tell her that there was dun, a deer on the dun, dun, dun. Mm. Thus, the plot continues. <laughs> exactly. Oh shit, we can't do Vinifomaniac anymore. Uh, no. Choices! <laughs> mm -hmm. There wasn't like the subplot on how she became like the biggest hoe in town. <laughs> that would have made a movie more bearable. Movie. You know, a, <laughs> sort of a filler in between, you know, the only partially good blood-soaked revenge film. Uh, in terms of Reiko Ike's performance, I, I, I think she is good when the movie is good, which is again only in parts. You know, it, it's not the, an actress that made the same impression on me as in uh, the actress in Female Prisoner. Uh, not at all. Mm -hmm. So, I've got a question for you two. Are you going to watch Female Yakuza Tale? Mm, which is... No. A kind of sequel to this. Really? Yeah. Um, no, I would rather watch the at least the other three in the Female Prisoner series. Mm -hmm. Wait, did you say it was a sequel or a prequel? Female Yakuza Tale. Yeah. What in in terms of story, I don't know if it's a, a sequel or prequel, but it was made after Sex and Fury. Mm -hmm. Judge by that title, it sounds almost more modern, but. Yeah, not too keen to dive right back into that one. Yeah, and you know either. what? You know, based on the you know the fight scene in the snow in this film, I would rather try on Lady Snowblood or something like that, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be really good also. But I, I don't know if it's will have sort of a fate of Sex and Fury and only have partially good parts. Have you have you seen Lady Snowblood? Uh, nope, but. Now that we've mentioned how the lassie from uh, Female Prisoner actually went on to star in, was it the sequel? No, she was in both. Okay. She was in both. Well, I think that, well, judging by her performance in that film, it might be worth looking at those ones first. I've been wanting to watch Lady Snowblood for ages. And then sit and count like, the Tarantino references. Mm. <laughs> I, well, oh. I haven't seen either Kill Bill yet, so it'll be lost on me. Really? Yeah, I haven't got around to it. Okay, well, we'll let the forum get to him. Don't worry. So, yeah. Um. I think, have we covered the tale of Sex and Fury? Yeah, I think we covered the shit out of that. Okay. I think also, the rating... Slight what? side note. Mm -hmm. The second female prisoner film from quite a lot of people of you know, read on forums and stuff. They reckon that's the best one. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Mm. So I'll be looking forward to that if it's better than uh, the first one. Hmm. And isn't it already, well, isn't it gotten a UK release? I think the trilogies came out in a box set. Yeah, yeah. Over yeah, in the UK. For a while. The, mm -hmm. uh, in America and Britain. You can get most, pretty much all the uh, female prisoner films. Or female mm -hmm. convicts, as they're called in America. And this pinky violence is really widespread on DVD. Really widespread. At least the uh, you know the female prison movies and you know you 
you, 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 if you start browsing 8K flicks, you know you're bound to turn up, uh, stumble upon loads of these uh, these movies. Mm -hmm. well, there was a company called an American DVD company called Panic House, mm -hmm. who released uh, a box set called the Pinky Violence Collection. Uh, right. Unfortunately, the company went bust. It's a bit of a bummer, because uh, apparently, um, hang on, uh, they did release quite a lot. Bad sales. Girl boss gorilla, sounds good. Oh. Female bikers, gang violence, cat vice, grindhouse girls gone way past wild. <laughs> sounds good to me. Sound like Russ Meyer's films. You know, had that uh, she she devils on wheels or stuff like that, which um, I didn't know that actually because um, Synapse or Synapse are releasing some of these, I think, some of these uh, type of films too. So so there's always something to get out there, and uh, hopefully, like movies like Female Prisoner have been picked up, you know, not only in the UK but in other places too. So the movie movie won't be totally out of print just via that company yeah so since we rated female prisoner three thumbs up I think we should rate sex and fury two blood soaked ugly ass titties out of five <laughs> <laughs> I'll get rid of that could you make up the graphic for that please do so we can post the it's just gonna be like single tits smeared in blood. <laughs> like two, then three greyed out ones. Two nymphomaniac elixirs out of five. Yes. <laughs> oh, right. Not, no, not effective enough. Mm -hmm. So, do we have plug in for this evening? Yeah, um, just look well, up these films on, I don't know, HK Flicks or whatever. Um, Good UK supplier does uh, the female prison movies play. Yeah, no, no. well, things I've just mentioned them. Might as well uh, give a shout out to Eureka. Mm -hmm. um, I actually met the guy who runs uh, Eureka. So nice bloke. Um, yeah, so you can go to EurekaVideo.co.uk, and they've got uh, Tokyo Sonata coming out soon. And they released the Hanzo the Razor box set as well. Yeah, sweet films. As well as the Female Prisoner trilogy on DVD. Tons of other, mostly Japanese films, but... Good selection of films going on there. Mm -hmm. Stu, um, you got a uh, plug? Well, hopefully, hopefully, judging by my editing, we'll get this one out in time, but... For our UK listeners, BBC4 are doing a bunch of... It's just basically doing a season of Japanese movies. It, as far as I know, they're going to be th showing two more movies from the season. I think I've actually caught on to it a bit late. But they're also showing several documentaries of just like the sight, scenery, the cultures of Japan. So... The only way I could think of providing you with more information is if you hop onto our forum and have a peek at the Asian movies on TV topic, where basically that's all we've been doing. We've been posting where you could find some Asian cinema, like on your TV, because I think on Monday they showed the Japanese comedy Ping Pong. They're also going on to be showing The Hidden Blade and Gohato. So, yeah, just look out for those films showing up on BBC Four. Ken? Uh, nah, um, I'm sticking to my check out play, I guess, mm -hmm. of, uh, for uh, to buy these uh, Pinky Violence films. Female Prisoner Seven One is highly recommended, and uh, yeah, I'm sticking to that. And and if not play any any good reliable place in the UK, you, you mm -hmm. guys are better than me better than me about that right so yes this is at the end of the show joining us we had Mike I'm Stuart Sullen and the host for this evening Ken mm. catch you next time mm.
Right, so the plot for this one is after being cruelly set up by a crooked detective named Shugami. Shugimi. Shugimi, your money. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stop at every name and make like a crack. <laughs> Well, sorry, I'm too busy looking at the other names trying to think of more. <laughs> right, um, maybe you're better than this game. Ah, me! Oh, come on, right. Seriously? Yes, seriously. Serious, serious trash. Yeah, seriously, please, Ken, could you read it instead? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right.